Guys, guys, do you know, do you know what is special about this episode? I think we've hit a big milestone. We hit a big milestone. This is episode 100. Can you All right. stand it? You guys, some people have listened to us talk about opera 100 times at this point. For th- over three years. For over three years. And that's guys, not even counting the times that you re-listen to your favorite episode. Which are obviously multiple. <laughs> many, many times. <laughs> many, many, many times. <laughs> guys, thank you so much for, I guess, sticking with us. For this long, I mean, who would have thought that we would have still been doing a <laughs> hundred episodes later? I know. Uh-huh. Yes. Thank you for telling your friends about us mm-hmm. and for sharing Opera After Dark with other people that you think would enjoy the types of content and fun times that we produce. So we really enjoy doing it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here 100 episodes later. True. So we're very excited that it seems like you, our listeners, really enjoy it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just we just want to say thanks. And as a thank you, <laughs> this episode is all about Lulu. <laughs> 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 who, who would have thought episode 100 is probably the most atonal, dissonant, difficult listening experience opera that we would touch on up to this point? Right. So thank you for sticking around for as long as you have. And I hope this next episode doesn't turn you off completely. We tried really hard to explain atonal music and serialism in, in a way that was simple. And I think we probably failed. But I mean... We tried, people. We really tried. We think you'll enjoy it, and uh, we certainly plan on continuing the podcast, and here's to a hundred more episodes. (gasps) Thanks, guys. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Opera After Dark. (laughs) Perfect. That's perfect. It's a new opera. (laughs) Well, hi, folks. Welcome. Brand new episode of Opera After Dark. And today we're continuing in the tradition of talking about extremely difficult 20th century works mm-hmm. yeah. and this is a, a listener another listener request um so we're going to talk about Alban Berg's Lulu which is one of the most important operas of the 20th century it is not funny it's not funny at any point you but said it's it, certainly interesting you said it's one of the most important operas of the 20th century I mean I think so yeah I don't know I'm excited to to hear exactly why I'm not refuting that 
okay i just had i was like why what have you heard (laughs) (laughs) i hadn't referred or i hadn't heard it referred to in that way so i'm even more intrigued i certainly having seen it just the once now i i I could be wrong because i am not an expert on lulu at all or on berg but is this the first ever completely serial opera Maybe. I mean, he wrote Vatsek first, but I wouldn't consider Vatsek. Vatsek is not serial, yeah. but it is completely atonal. Right. I think it might be. I think that is one of its, you know, labels as one of the first serialist operas. If it's not, you know, technically the first, then it is certainly the earliest, most popular sure. serialist opera. Should we... Popular is the word for it. Right. Should we talk about serial versus atonal? Or we'll, is get, that yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> So Alban Berg was born in 1885, and he died in 1935. He uh, was a student of Arnold Schoenberg. And Berg, along with a bunch of other composers like um, Anton Webern, they formed what was colloquially known as the Second Viennese School. Right. Um, do you have any ideas as to who would be in the first Viennese school? Well, it was Schoenberg. No, the first no, one. The first. Oh, Schoenberg wasn't the first Viennese school. No, that's the second Viennese school. Schoenberg, Schoenberg Berg, and Webern. Webern. They all formed this collective of composers that was known as the second Viennese school. Did like the, the first... second coming of like famous Viennese Austrian composers. Oh, gotcha. Like, but the, even though the first didn't refer to themselves as the first, it was more no, like correct. Correct. We have okay, retrospectively, well, retrospectively referred to them. to them. Well, certainly, scholars refer to them now as the first Viennese school. Oh. Is it, are we talking 19th or 20th century? No, much earlier. Oh, earlier. so like Mozart. Yeah. Yay! Yeah, so Mozart, Haydn, and... Oh. Beethoven. Oh, Beethoven. <laughs> yeah. Ludwig. <laughs> I didn't... Re- wow. I... Or as Bill and Ted say, Beethoven. Beethoven, yeah. Do you know they're That's making interesting. another Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure movie? Are they? Yes. Oh With goodness. Keanu Reeves, Yeah, right? and the other God. guy whose name I don't remember going to be amazing. I'm really excited. I haven't seen any of those movies. Anyway, so second Viennese school. Before we get to Bear, talk about his teacher for a second. Uh, so Schoenberg um, was really into this idea that the logical progression of music would sort of lead to the complete breakdown of tonality. Um, so it means that music doesn't need melody or harmony or so he used that as like his teaching style to teach Berg and 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 Weber and, and I guess we should talk about serialism. Serialism. <laughs> well, I think we need to start with atonality first, right? And I think we've talked about this before on the podcast. So like music's based on an octave, right? Is this going back too far? No, I think this oh, is good. So music is based on an octave, so it's like an eight-note scale. Um, so. If you think of a piano and right. you think of the black and white keys, and if you know anything about music or if you don't, this is new to you. Fun fact, we have note names that are alphabetical letters, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then they repeat A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Right. And so that is a pattern. And those are the white keys on the piano. Then you can alter the white keys by like raising the pitch a little bit or lowering it a little bit, and those are the black keys. Right. So serialism, atonal music, 12-tone music, dodecaphonic music, whatever you want to fucking call it, is not based on an eight-note scale. It's based on a 12-note scale, which means yes. it's all the white keys and it's also all the black keys. 
And the idea is... So it's like a bunch of fucking half steps, which I don't hear very well. Right. So a scale, if you're going to play a C major scale, there are seven unique pitches and then the C repeats. You start on C and you do C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. Seven unique pitches, eight pitches make a scale. But in between all of those notes, there are half steps. And so if you include all of the half steps... In between the notes of a major scale, you will get 12 unique pitches. Right, and that's a chromatic scale. Chromatic scale. Very well done. Thank you. So atonality and and serialism in the lot are using all of the pitches instead of just... Atonality is when... You use them all without any kind of overriding structure. There is no key signature. There is no sense of like a a home pitch or a resolution that the music is moving towards. It's chaos. It is chaos. Complete chaos. Um, Serialism is like taking the chaos and putting like a a structure on top of it. Right. Which an audience probably can't hear, but there is a a structure to it. So Schoenberg took those 12 notes Mm -hmm. and he um, created something called a tone row. Kyle's so interested. Uh, Which is a sequence. You're in it? Okay. Which is a sequence of those 12 notes that doesn't repeat. Mm -hmm. I think one time Naomi was trying to explain it to to me in a way that a musician wouldn't get. It's like um, if you play uh, Sudoku, which I don't, um, it's kind of like that where you have these (laughs) <laughs> these rows <laughs> of notes and um, every sequence is different and none of the notes um, repeat. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the idea is that this gives a composer kind of like a schematic right. that they can follow. So they can start on any of those 12 pitches and they can put the pitches in whatever order they want. Mm-hmm. doesn't have to follow any particular order, but they are not allowed to repeat a pitch until they've voiced or stated all 12 of them. Right. So that then first, you can repeat it. That first row of 12 is known as like the prime form. Mm-hmm. And so the composer takes the prime form and sort of does any kind of variation on it that he or she wants as long as none of the notes repeat. So there are things like if you go from like left to right in the prime row, that's just regular old prime row. You can take the prime row and you can go backwards. That's considered through the order of 12 and that's considered retrograde you can flip the prime row and do like a flip it in terms of like interval structure which is getting way deep but you can flip it and then kind of do a mirror of the interval structure that's the um inverted row and then you can take the inverted row and you can go backwards and that's retrograde inversion so you can flip it and reverse it um i developed a deep deep hatred for 12 tone rows that's fine. When it's I not was in, fun in music theory. And in ear training. Oh, it's very yeah. difficult. It's, it's really difficult. I mean, very come difficult. on. Where basically you're, you're played 12 random notes and you need to write down which notes you're hearing in what order. It's, it's a bunch of bullshit. No, it is. is. What it it, is. It's rough because you have no sense of of anything, really. They're just yeah, you notes have, that are coming out of nowhere. The only way you can do it, I think, in ear training is if you can very, very quickly distinguish the interval distance from like the distance from one pitch to the next and then you can like remember the intervals that's your only hope i think it was just but, my um, my gross. comeuppance mm. from ear training one to then ear training four where in ear training one you're learning like do re mi and yeah. as a, somebody who's been in choirs you know you're like oh this is easy oh my god <laughs> and then when you get to ear training four you're like 
disaster. Oh, I'm Complete not as disaster. good of a musician <laughs> no, as all of these no, instrumentalists. No, no, oh, no, no. no. I mean, in my case, it was true. It's not for everybody, it's true, but in mine. I mean, I feel no. like as singers, that's how you're led to feel. That you're like, they're singers and then they're musicians, which is. I bullshit. agree. I agree. That's bullshit. I'm telling you, in my personal case. <laughs> that was true. <laughs> it, I am not a great musician. Decent singer. That's not a great musician. It just is what it is. You call think, it what it is. I think Kyle's being way too humble. But anyway, I, we've all heard sure. him. We've all heard him sing. Y- yes. Yeah. Like I said, mm, decent mm, voice. Mm, Have you ever heard me mm. sing something that is atonal or in a no, twelve tone row? Have you ever? It would be bad. No, it wouldn't. Um. Anyhow, so yeah, we digress. So Schoenberg was basically like. Fuck everyone. My music is like... And the interesting thing about Berg is that up until this point, if you look at it in music history, people were coming off of like Puccini mm-hmm. and uh, Mahler and, you know, Wagner. And um, what Berg really did is he took this idea of, of serialism and he sort of made it palatable for an audience that was used to this really like neo-romantic, not neo-romantic, romantic... Uh, mm-hmm. style of music yeah. what was the composition date of lulu or premiere date so the compositional timeline for lulu is that he worked on the composition between 1929 and 1935 and then he actually died before yep. it was finished and oh, so right. there was an incomplete version of it that had its world premiere in 1937 and then several people kind of worked to get a complete version of it created and that completed version made its premiere in 1979 i mean that connects to what i was thinking and also not but i, I think turandot had its per- premiere in like 1924 it's amazing yeah that so it's, it's not that yeah it's within the 10 years following that that this was composed pretty pretty crazy yeah they sound completely different if you mm-hmm. just heard those and had no other context you would think that they were years and years apart so a couple of, of fun stories about Berg before we get uh, into into yes. Lulu is This is what we're known for, guys. Fun stories. I mean, I think it's what people like most. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. <laughs> so in nineteen thirteen, uh two of Berg's uh, songs were premiered in Vienna and they were conducted by Schoenberg because hmm. he sort of started this like community organization where his students performed works that he conducted and they didn't let critics come in, so it could be like a nice atmosphere to listen to new music kind of shit. Mm. Um, and so this turned into something that was known as the Scandal Concert. Um, wow. Mm-hmm. Right. The scandal Concert. So it was Berg and then uh, works by Webern and a, a man named Zemlinski, uh, excuse me. It was called the, Ven- the Venice Concert Society is what this thing was. Whatever, uh-huh. it doesn't matter. Um, so the audience, hypo- like hypothetically, we allegedly... We really don't know if this is 100% true. Uh-huh. Um, I might have talked about this in previous episodes, but the audience got so pissed by what they were hearing that they they rioted. Nice. This is classic for that time period. Right. And the know, concert organizer, exactly, was a man named Erhard Buschbeck, and he got, um, oh, no, he punched somebody in the face. <gasps> and so there was a lawsuit, right? What? Nice. And um, one of the people in the audience was the uh, operetta composer, Oscar Strauss. 
not Ricard, right, no relation. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the opera composer Oscar Oscar Strauss was there, and he testified in the trial that the sound of the punch had been the most harmonious sound oh, of the evening. I think I had heard that. that <laughs> Boom! Oh, that's Sick funny. burn, Oscar. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> what did it sound like? Probably like this. Yeah, deep and melodious. Actually, a nice. If you thwack. ever hear the sound of, you know, because that's like the movie. Right, it doesn't version. sound like that in real life, right? right? It's, it's it's more of just like a like a weird like slapping of skin to skin. You've never seen somebody get punched? No, I have not. <laughs> You've never seen anybody get punched in real life? Yeah. No. I, I I honestly can't think of a time either where like I've witnessed somebody punching someone with intent to hurt them. Yeah. Like uh, anything more <laughs> than like a I don't shoulder know, punch. I don't know what it says about me, but I feel like I've witnessed somebody getting punched. I don't know. I, oh, I know of a time specifically, but. That, yeah. Anyways. <laughs> I think Kyle's life is a rich tapestry. It was tapestry. not. It was not. It was Kyle, not Kyle, you live such an elaborate life. We all such an elaborate life. Mm. I hate myself. <laughs> we don't know what words are true. Strangers love us. Okay. We need to um, get scandal concert as a trending hashtag. Hashtag scandal. Mm-hmm. Scandal with the K, so scandal. Ooh, <laughs> concert yes. with a Z. Yeah, or like put it on a T-shirt. Yes. Scandal concert. Can you imagine yeah, yeah. living at a time where people got so impassioned by classical music that they beat the shit out of each other? <laughs> <laughs> but also, I, want I wonder to live in that time. how much of this is true because you've got around this time like the Rite of Spring and then the Scandal concert. And wasn't there another one later on? There was the one at Carnegie Hall. Like Carnegie Hall. Mm-hmm. We talked about where, it. Where like some rich guy was like waving a white flag he's like stop stop (laughs) yeah was that in the stravinsky episode no that was a different composer oh the one who called himself the the whatever of new jersey the whatever oh yeah yeah oh like the oh what was it um the guy who was all the train horns and stuff and like the car engines and airplane things yes the something something of trenton yeah (laughs) (laughs) the bad boy of trenton wasn't it something like that or it was like the People, if you give yourself a nickname, other people are going to make fun of you. <laughs> yeah. But, and for the record, there is a lot of debate as to whether or not the Rite of Spring Riot actually happened or oh, was no. a riot. No, I, like, I want to believe that it it was. It, I mean, it, we all want nice to believe story. it because it's a great story. But... I want to believe. Um, anyway, so. Okay, any, that any other scandals in... from the life of Berg? I have one from his life. Go for it. Yes. Okay, so. Um, let's just review what year he was born in. 1885. 1885. So, um, in 1902... 17-year-old boy. He had a daughter... Ooh. ...with the maid in their family household... Oh. ...named Marie, who was 15 years his senior. Oh! (laughs) Oh! Oh! Go on. What an interesting power dynamic. Go on. I mean, that that's pretty what much happened the extent to them. Of- I want to know the story of Marie. <laughs> the, the terrible thing, though, about that is that if if it was flip flopped, well, you'd be like rapist. Yeah, like gender roles. It, it would. You'd well, be yeah, like, because she works him or something like that. So how she well, was the like thirty two. Like, she was a maid. Uh-huh. I mean, he and- very well still could have. I was just going to say, like, she was she was a maid in their household, so that leads me to believe that, like, she didn't really have a whole lot of power to say no or, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't know what her circumstances were. She could 
like need the money to support her family and right i don't want to accuse anybody of anything yeah that's that's all i know about it but dang he had a daughter the daughter's name was albina and (laughs) wait time out for one or albine wait 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 wait. so albon named his albon and albine this is like a claude claudette or what was the for Debussy. Oh, Debussy. Oh, didn't they just... It was like Claude Michel. Yeah, they like just yeah. named her Claude Michel. <laughs> they hyphenated their two first names yeah. to right. make her name. Yes. Smart people. Yes. Alban Berg wrote one of my favorite operas, like legitimately one of my favorite operas of all time, Vatsek. That was the first opera he wrote. Um, he wrote it, started writing it while he was serving in the Austro-Hungarian army during the First World War, mm-hmm. which is pretty fucked up time. So he started writing it in 1917. It didn't get performed into 1924 because obviously there was a lot of shit going on in Europe at that time. Vatsek. Um, Vatsek, yes. Yeah. And it actually was a, a pretty rousing public success. Hey. I, and didn't he write about how he imbued a lot of himself into the character of Vatsek because he felt like the war had such a profoundly traumatic impact on him that like the the experience and kind of the trauma that Vatsek goes through Mm -hmm. he felt was reflective of like some of the things that he experienced oh absolutely yeah yeah and i mean if you ever get a chance to see it you should check it out it's short is it how long is voltec never seen it 12 scenes right 90 minutes 12 scenes can mean a lot lot of of different things 90 minutes no intermission really short Mm -hmm. so okay that's not bad it's not it's not bad at all it is a traumatizing 90 minutes how big is the orchestra curiosity in Vatsek. It's not that big. Not like Wagner big. No, it's like a standard mm. standard center orchestra, right? Yeah. There is an onstage band for one scene. Mm-hmm. Oh. Very nice. Okay, yeah. so we have Vatsek. That happens. Yeah, he writes about a bunch of other shit. He teaches. He's a pretty successful musician. Um, obviously, around the time in the 1930s, there is the rise of uh, anti-Semitism and the oh. Nazi party. And Berg got into a lot of trouble. Um, and it sort of affected him financially because people stopped programming his music because he was associated with Arnold Schoenberg, who was Jewish. Oh, but and Berg like, himself is not Berg Jewish. himself was not, but because he associated with Schoenberg, that's like all it, it took. Dang. And so performances of his works became rarer and rarer until his mm-hmm. his death in um, 1935. And I don't know the exact history of this, but I'm pretty sure that all of his music was kind of lumped in with the like degenerate art yes. category mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. atonality and serialism generally was considered degenerate, degenerate style, music. right? Yeah. And so his his music Band was part by the of Nazi that. party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Naomi and I just remembered uh, so Berg died when he was 50. He died in Vienna. Um, on Christmas Eve, actually. Mm. Before Lulu was completed. Before Lulu was completed, he died because he got stung in the back by a bug and he got blood poisoning. Oh, man. How tragic. Especially because he's, like, really so close to, like, our modern world of medicine. I know. At that Mm -hmm. point in time. Did we, I mean, surely, was there penicillin then? Surely. Come on. Surely, but I, I don't. I don't, I don't know. know for certain. Yeah. I and don't I'm, know for certain. I'm not a doctor of any sort. No. No? Unlike... unlike Question? Mark? Dr. Baratera over here. <laughs> right. <laughs> doctor of medicine, Naomi Baratera. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he had completed all the orchestrations for the first two oh, acts of Lulu, had. but he had not finished the orchestration for the 
third. Oh. Which so, is where you get into some really... That's when, like, the history of Lulu gets weird and funky. Because in 1937, his wife, Helene, basically banned anybody from doing it. And so it got into this weird... Um, legal things she like banned people from trying to complete the final act so when it was first performed they did the first two acts and then the last act was sort of like a lulu orchestral suite of stuff that he had completed but then you don't see the end of this story correct I mean, correct yes yes bummer fun sad fact uh-huh. mm-hmm. um oh great penicillin was apparently discovered in 1928 by a Scottish scientist, Alexander Fleming. Um, But people did not begin using it to treat infections until 1942. So, like, sadly, Barrick died, like, right in the middle of that. So it was discovered or invented, so to speak. Yeah. Discovered. And then... It's right on the cusp. But if he had just, like, hung in, I don't know, like, six or seven more years, he might have... just waited to be stung by that insect. Yeah. Anyhow... So what happened is after he died, oh, um, right. he'd finished like the first, I think, 268 bars of the third act. Mm-hmm. And he did hear a, like a symphonic, like sweet version played on the BBC before he died. And that was the only time he'd ever heard any oh, of, well, of Lulu nice. played. Um, so after he died, his wife wanted Schoenberg to, to finish it. Um, and the composer said... Uh, no thanks. Um, <laughs> and he publicly said it's because he's like, I've got a lot of shit going on. I don't, I don't really have time to do this. But privately, it was because there's a lot of language in the third act um, that is really anti-Semitic, especially um, when it involves a specific character uh, who's a banker. Mm. Um, and so Schoenberg didn't really like the tone of that and the lines for this bank were like really screeching and things like and that and Schoenberg was like I don't really feel comfortable doing this I'm not going to do I mean, it you can't blame him for that no of course not mm-hmm. um and so then his wife asked uh Schoenberg's other students Anton Weber and Alexander Zemlinsky and they're both like no thank you wow. um and so even though like I said it was incompleted it was incomplete. It's not really a word. It was incomplete, and there was a premiere of it in Zurich on in 1937, and the audience was kind of like, huh, cool. So who completed it? Well, so what that happened? Happen until later. Much, much later. What happened was... Well, what happened was... <laughs> in 1977, James Levine conducted the opera in its incomplete form at the Met, and the fully finished version, which is orchestrated by the Austrian composer Friedrich Cerha, Cerha? It might be Cerha, um, was premiered in Paris in 1979, and then the Met did the full version of that a year later. So 1980 is when the full opera wow. um, came to the Met. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And do you want to know why his wife didn't let any, had like a real problem with it? Yes. Okay. So what, hap- what happened was... <laughs> Um, in 1977, there was a musical scholar. So wait, his wife is still alive in 1977? Oh, Helene? that would be... No, that's No, amazing. she died in 1976. Oh, I, sorry. Oh, wow. I see they did not wait this. long. They did not wait long for Okay, this. okay. All right, wow. so there's a scholar named George who discovered an annotated score of Berg's lyric suite um, which he dedicated to this woman named Hannah Fuchs Robiton, who was the wife of a Prague industrialist. Um, 
and in his own script, Barrick had written, For whom and only for whom, in spite of the official dedication, every note of this work was written. So the lyric suite is like what they used for the end of oh, Lulu. And so I think gosh. his wife saw that and was like, that fucking son of a bitch. <laughs> um, and so Barrick had... Um, the score was annotated in a lot of detail, like color-coded inks to reveal like the hidden message in the whole work. And oh he even had goodness. these... Um, these uh, basic cells that he combined his own initials and Hannah's own initials to form, like, the note pattern in it and things like that. Um, apparently, they had two. They had the numbers 10 and 23, which were our numbers. Oh. Um, 23 is one of my numbers. Well, there you go. So yeah. 10 and 23 were their numbers, and they were in that piece a lot. Like, they determined how many bars were in each movement. Um, wow. Yeah, so the whole thing is basically dedicated uh, to this this woman. Um, and Berg made use of uh, two notes, H, which I guess means b- the note B. I don't know why. I think H is usually B flat. Means B flat. You're looking at the wrong person. And then uh, the note F, which stood for Hannah Fuchs. Um, and oh. he used these all over the opera, especially in the last act when the character of the Countess Geishwitz, her last line is, um, I'm not going to do it in German, but it means I remain close to you and shall remain so in eternity, which was like his secret message to this woman. Ouch. So his wife was like, huh, no, no, no. And that's yeah. why she uh, took all these pains to like obstruct people from doing the. It's like, yeah, nobody's going to play the this. opera. Wow. A-hole. Yeah. Well, shucks. So, a lot of interesting history around this opera. But the whole thing is basically about, like, sexual violence Mm -hmm. and the violence inherent in, like, patriarchal marriage and the, like, power of men over women and the danger of, like, how women have no agency and all of this shit. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, So, there are a fuck ton of characters Mm -hmm. in Lulu. So we probably will not mention most of them. We'll, we'll focus on, like, the, the main ones, right? Mm-hmm. So the opera opens with a prologue with a character who's only known as the Animal Tamer. And he invites the audience to come and visit his menagerie, which features the serpent Lulu. Curtain. Oh, curtain. Wow. That is nutshell. <laughs> wow. So Lulu is posing for her portrait. Um, and she is there, observed by a man named Dr. Shun, who was going to be in this opera a lot, who is a wealthy newspaper publisher, and he is her longtime lover. Lulu was supposed to be, like, 14 or 15. Oh, wow. Yeah, and Dr. Shun is a lot older. Isn't this supposed to be, I don't mean to, like, bring it right to this. Yeah, go for it. But is this supposed to be, like, she's, like, posing nude or something like that? I think it just depends on the production. Okay. Yeah. All I remember from the Met production from a couple of years ago is like that constant image of the the singer singing Lulu has like the one like drawn breast pasted on top of her shirt or something. Yeah, and I think the whole thing with that is I that they were say trying that's the to, only thing I remember. The only I, thing I remember are the drawn <laughs> boobies. No, um, I mean I mean that was like the image that was used over and over and over and yeah, over. Yeah, yeah. And I think that whole concept was like how um Lulu is just basically this cipher where all the men in her life are putting on their their mm, image of what she is and gotcha. she's not really a whole person, whatever. And that was a Robert Lepage production, yeah? William Kentridge. Oh, William Kentridge. Yeah, so the, yeah. the same designer who's bringing Watek. Oh, wonderful. Okay. So Lou is posing for a portrait. Dr. Shun leaves, and the painter tries to seduce uh, Lulu. He's like, Lulu, I love you. You're awesome. 
Um, and then just then her husband, who only goes by the physician, oh. he walks in and he sees them together and he's so shocked that he collapses and has a heart attack and dies. Whoa. Right. And Lulu's standing there and the painter's like, oh my God, what's happening? And she's like, shit, I'm rich now. Okay. All right. Scene. Okay. Scene. Um, so Lulu, because she's rich, I guess, decides to marry this painter. And Lulu finds out that Dr. Shun, who like found her on the streets and rescued her from a life of poverty or whatever when she was a child, and I'm sure had sex with her and their relationship is very weird. Um, she finds out that Dr. Shun is getting engaged. And he shows up at their place and he wants Lulu just like out of his life so he can get married. Um, and then he sits down, he tells the painter all about Lulu's life and how he found her and all these horrible things that she did and all of this. And the painter's so horrified by this story that he slits his throat. What? Oh my god. Well, this whole thing is very symbolic. Like whatever. Yes, yes. He he like slits his, his his throat and Sean is like really horrified and Lulu is just sort of standing there like, mm, okay. Um and she tells Sean to leave. She's like, Don't worry about it, I'll see you later. Whatever. You're gonna <laughs> cool, you're, buddy, you're cool. gonna you're gonna marry me anyway. So it's fine. Wow, so two husbands dead. Two husbands dead. And she's like, Sean, whatever you say, it doesn't matter because you're gonna marry me anyway. Because yeah. he has groomed her. It's fine. Um, So weeks later, Lulu is apparently a dancer, and she's (laughs) performing in a ballet composed by Shun's son. And his son comes to visit her in her dressing room. There is literally no way to quickly talk about this plot because it's so complicated. (laughs) You're doing great. You're doing great. You are. You're doing very well. So Shun's son, whose name is Alba, uh, he visits her dressing room, and she tells him of her latest admirer, who is a prince. Um, and then she goes on stage, and the prince and Alva have a little conversation about how much the prince loves Lulu. And then Lulu comes storming back in the dressing room because she's seen Dr. Shun in the audience, and he's there with his fiance, and she refuses to dance for this woman. Uh, Shun follows her, finds her, and goes into the dressing room and tells everybody to get the fuck out. He's got to talk to her. Everybody leaves. Um, and he tells her, you're not going to be able to stop my marriage, so what are you doing here? And she says, it doesn't even fucking matter anyway because I'm going to marry this prince guy. And when Shun uh, hears that, he's just like, I can't let you go. And so uh, I, I, everything is toxic and horrible. And he's like, I can't let go of you. And Lulu's like, cool, I think you should break up with this woman. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to do that. But she had a prince. Curtain. That's in the act one? Yes. Okay. Act two. Act two. Act two is when shit gets good. Well, good's a relative word. Yeah. Um, shit gets traumatic. All right. So Lulu and Shun married. They live in a fantastic, luxurious home. And Shun is a doctor. Is he a psychologist? Possibly. He's not I a medical remember. doctor. That would be a little bit ironic. I think Maybe he is. A little because bit doesn't he like try and yeah. like hypnotize her or something like that? I don't remember. We'll find out. Yeah. So they live in a luxurious home. They're married. They have all these guests come in. And Lulu has all these admirers, including the Countess Geishwitz, who is a lesbian. Oh, right. Um, And all of these, like, degenerate artistic people. And Dr. Sharon is like, I really am not cool with the fact that there are all these people in my fucking house. Um, (laughs) I mean, that's how he feels. (laughs) Right, right, right. And his son shows up, Alva, who is this useless tenor. And he thinks he's alone with Lulu, and Alva is like, girl, I love you, because every man loves Lulu. Um, and unbeknownst to him, Dr. Shun is, like, hiding, and he hears all of this, and he comes out, and he's like, get the fuck out of my house. So his son leaves. Um, and Dr. Shun, obviously, this is all very symbolic. He takes out a revolver, and he gives it to Lulu, and he's like, 
you have to kill yourself because <gasps> this is like really ruining my reputation. Oh my You're gosh. seducing all of these men. All these people are coming, telling you that they love you. I can't deal with this anymore. Everything's getting really complicated. Just kill yourself because you're like ruining my reputation as an upstanding member. Dr. Shin is the worst. Upside. Which he is, is the worst. Definitely. Also odd because his name means beautiful. Like Dr. Beautiful, Dr. Shin. Yeah. Yeah. And Lulu responds by saying that she's never pretended to be anything but what she is, which mm-hmm. take that with whatever. Um, so Dr. Shun grabs her and forces her to her knees. Um, and then somebody who's in the house, it was a schoolboy that came and was like, Lulu, I love you. Um, starts crying for help and saying, like, somebody help her, somebody help her. And so Lulu takes the gun and fires five shots into Shun's back and she kills him. Um, and another then she, husband dead. Another husband dead. And then she begs his son Alva to not turn her into the police. And that scene is really interesting because obviously there's a lot of crazy ass music in Lulu. And even though there's a structure to it, it just sounds like total chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she shoots him in the back, it's the only part of the opera where there's like 10 seconds of just dead silence. Nice. Nothing happens. And then he Ooh, dies. And it's it's super effective. That's bone chilling. It is. It's yeah. really cold. While he's like crawling. Should we listen? Should we listen to the sequence leading up to silence? Ooh, we've never featured silence on the podcast before. So what happens after that, the next scene is uh, this really famous orchestral interlude that depicts Lulu's arrest, her murder trial, her imprisonment. She gets ill with cholera. She goes to a hospital and then her plans to escape. 
Um, the countess allows herself to be infected with the same disease as Lulu so she can take her place in the hospital. Oh, boy. Um, it's not something you can really hear, but the whole sequence is famous because it's a musical palindrome, which mm. means around the halfway point, which is measure 687 for anybody interested, the music just starts going in reverse order. Mm-hmm. And it's it's super cool and really famous. And isn't that whole palindrome supposed to be... It was, like, designed to be paired with, like, a silent film. With a silent film. Depicting yep. these events that you've described. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm. So you see it all happen in, like, mm-hmm. accelerated time. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's really cool. palindrome happens the movie happens and then we cut to live on stage where alva together with the countess Countess. um they await lulu return in shun's old apartment um i guess the countess got better Mm. (laughs) thankfully thankfully and why are they waiting for lulu's return what is she up to these days oh we'll get to that in a second We'll get to that in a second. I'm intrigued. So she arrives, and everyone is sort of appalled because she looks like shit. Because she's been sick, and she's been on the run, and one of the people waiting for her, who is an acrobat, um, goes run off, and he's like, I'm going to tell the police about all this shit. I can't deal with this anymore. And then Alva is there, and he's alone with Lulu, and she's like, we have to get out of this country. Come to Paris with me. And he's like, yeah, let's go to Paris. And that's how the act ends. Ah. And then the infamous third act infamous infamous um so uh this part premiered in 1979 just think about that for a second Mm -hmm. not so long ago i'm sorry was were there words like did people know how the plot was supposed to end i mean generally because it's based on a play a really famous play oh by what's his name franz vendekind Oh. Who also wrote Spring Awakening for anybody who's... Oh, Yeah, wow. that guy. Okay. That degenerate guy. <laughs> okay, so it's not like somebody had to come up with an ending to the plot. It, no, they they're just based on to two the plays called Pandora's Box and Earth Spirit. Oh, wow. And they're, uh, they're very famous at the time. Pandora's Box is actually a really famous silent film starring Louise Brooks. Okay. And that's how Louise Brooks became famous. Anyway, um, act three. 
So there's a crowd at Alva's Paris mansion, because apparently all these people are rich as fuck, um, in honor of Lulu's birthday. And um, a lot of the company have invested in a new cable railway car, and they talked to the, the banker about all their prospects. Um, a lot of stuff happens. Someone threatens to reveal Lulu to the police as the murderer of Dr. Shun, and he tries to blackmail her into working in a brothel, and she's like, I'm not doing that. Fuck you. Um, a lot of blackmail, a lot of blackmail, a lot of blackmail. She uh, devises a plot to get someone killed. All this sort of shit happens, and there's an uproar in the crowd as there's news spreading that the railway shares have collapsed and everyone is poor. And all that confusion, Lulu escapes with a bunch of people right when the cops come in to arrest her. And so, final scene. Hmm. It's where things get very weird. They're all poor now. They're in a shabby garret. They're in London. Alva has syphilis. (laughs) (laughs) Which is not funny, but will always be funny. (laughs) Syphilis. It's also, like, unsurprising given... The situation, the situation that they're all in. <laughs> yes. Right. And the time period that this story would have taken place in. Right. And yeah. this whole time, Lulu has sort of been followed by this man whose name I'm never going to pronounce correctly. I think it's Shigolch, mm-hmm. who's always with her. And we never really know who he is. But the theory is that he's her dad. Oh. Who's always sort of there with her and, like, asking people for money and stuff like that. But he's there now in London in this Garrett apartment. And they're waiting for Lulu to come back um, from her first night as a prostitute. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, she arrives with her first client, um, and they go to do their business off stage. Um, and when he leaves, the Countess Geishwitz appears, and she's now destitute. Um, and she brings with her the portrait of Lulu from scene one, because her love for Lulu is uh, ever undying. And all three of them stare at this portrait, and they wonder how their fate has been bound up with this woman for, for so long. Lulu goes off and she returns with another client who's known as the African Prince. Alva tries to protect her. He's like, I don't think you should be a prostitute anymore. And so he attacks this prince and he gets stabbed. The or prince shot. Gets stabbed? No, or Alva, Alva gets stabbed. Oh, right, right. Shot, okay. whatever. Punched to death. He gets mm-hmm. killed. He is killed in the encounter. Right. Um, Lulu freaks out and she runs off into the street again. The Countess Geishwitz sits there and she wonders uh, when Lulu will return and how she's probably going to commit suicide and all this kind of stuff. And then Lulu comes back with the third and last client, um, who unbeknownst to her is Jack the Ripper. Oh. Right? right. And um, it's interesting because in... In the music, it states that the uh, the baritone that sings Dr. Strone also has to sing Jack the Ripper. It's mm-hmm. always the same person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they go off into her room, and suddenly everyone hears Lulu screaming, because obviously Jack the Ripper has killed her. Um, the Countess rushes in because she tries to save Lulu, and then Jack the Ripper stabs her as well. Aww. He leaves, and the Countess sings this short little aria where she cries out for Lulu, and she dies. And that's how the opera oh. Um, ends. Downer. Yeah. Very tragic. So much bad stuff happens right. in this opera. Yeah, there's not really a moment in the opera where you're like, oh, well, that has, is working out. Right. There's no real moment of, of levity. And we could honestly talk about this for a really long time, <laughs> delving into like what this means and what interpretation means what and all this kind of stuff. And, and yeah. I think, you know, singing the role of Lulu from like a singer's perspective can be in many ways like a a traumatizing thing because you're like embodying and playing this character who is so incredibly like used and abused by all of these people 
in her right. life and horrible things happened to her. I remember watching an interview with someone who had sung Lulu and they just said that like you really have to like get to know this character and then you have to you kind of go through periods as a singer where you you really love her and then sometimes you might really hate her and you might understand her and then you might not understand her at all and the idea that you have to find a way to look at Lulu with some kind of sympathetic angle otherwise just playing her is so even playing her like on a good day is so emotionally draining because she's so abused and so how do you deal with that like what kind of emotional and psychological preparation do you do as a singer to bring the character to life but also like protect yourself from becoming drained by this story a lot of people have said that um one of the noble for lack of a better word Mm -hmm. about things about the character of lulu is she is one of the i guess two i think geishvitz would be the other one characters who um is just basically honest about Mm-hmm. what it is that she wants and the things that she wants to do throughout the whole opera. And if you look at all the other characters, especially the men, they sort of impose their own fantasies upon her and everyone mm-hmm. is pushing her in a different direction. She's the only one that's sort of like... Better. Well, and when she says, I've never pretended to be anything other than what I am. Mm-hmm. Right, which right. is something you yeah. can say, like, Carmen says a lot. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And all these horrible things that have happened because the people, the men around her are, are misconstruing... Mm-hmm. her intentions to their own gain i don't know i mean there's right. a lot of scholarly works about it and it's super complicated <laughs> it is and it's not funny um somebody tell a joke or something well i was gonna to say, end on you jesus know, in the way of lulu we also don't claim to be anything that we're not and today we've really earned the explicit rating <laughs> have we did i say fuck a lot <laughs> have to run a counter Oh, no. I'm sorry. Oh, no. I mean, hey, we claimed explicit. It's true. Yes. But in any case, thanks, everyone, for for learning for about Lulu. For sticking Thank around. You. Yeah, thanks, Elspeth, for giving us the, the DL. No problem, man. It is a very important historic work. It's a very important historic work. Yes, and you validated your earlier statements. Mm-hmm. Whether one enjoys it, I think enjoying is the wrong word it's very important in the timeline of western music yes Mm -hmm. and i think you can you should not go into a performance of lulu expecting to like come out weeping from the sheer beauty of the sound and you should not go in expecting to like come out humming catchy tunes but if you go into a performance of it willing to go into an experience and like be moved by the experience I think there's a lot you can get out of it. It might be a very profound experience, but like you're not going to, you're not going to fall in love with it in the same way that you fall in love with Puccini or Mozart. Right. It's a you, different thing. It's a totally different thing. You can't, you can't even really like compare them. So, yeah. mm-hmm. well, I think we should go out and listening to the last aria by the Countess. Oh, is it down? Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's all down. Yeah. Well, in any case, thanks again for listening. As always, you can get in touch with us at operaafterdark.com or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would love it if you could leave a review for the podcast, wherever it is that you're listening. 
Also, we would be grateful for your support through patreon.com slash opera after dark. Yes, and buy our merch. Buy it's our merch. Right. Happy and bright, which is not what this episode was at all. Yeah. But our merch is so sparkly. Mm-hmm. Also available at operaafterdark.com. Well, well, we'll be up in our next episode. We'll find something. Uplifting. Up. Let's talk about anything. Else. <laughs> anything could be more up. Anything could be more uplifting than this. Right. Well, with that, I'm Kyle. I'm Naomi. And I'm Elspeth. Bye. Bye. So, ego, so, so what are you guys going to name your children? Uh, <laughs> if you have Elspeth, if you have a son like Elspetto or something. Elspetto. <laughs> that does not have like a great <laughs> ring to it. But <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. I- Naomi. If you, have a, if you have a girl, it's Iana. Iana. Oh. <laughs> right. Because Elspeth is married to an Ian. Yeah. Oh, what do you call your good. kids? Well, what do you call a car? The car's name is Gingeretta. Gingeretta. Oh. Because <laughs> it's a combination of your last names. Gingeretta yes. is a kind of a legit name yeah, for a sure. person. Maybe. I mean, How would you adapt Naomi into a man? I feel name? like there is no masculine derivative of Naomi. The only thing I could think of is like Naomo. Like maybe that's a real thing. I don't know. <laughs> hey, um, Naomo. But, Get over here. And then Any, how anyway. do you how do you feminize Denver? Anyway, Denverina. Actually, Denverina. <laughs> Denveretta. Yes, this is my daughter, Denveretta. We should stop talking about <laughs> yes. this. <laughs> we are down such a deep rabbit hole. Uh, right. Um, and the person listening to this named Denver, Denveretta is like, fuck you guys. Fuck you guys. Um, anyway, so. It's coming to the Met next season with a new production by William Kentridge. Yeah. Starring the one and only... Man of my dreams, Peter Matei. Oh, he Woo! is wonderful. Mm. It'll be interesting rich, because I feel like you usually voice. Um, voice like melting butter, like melted butter. You usually yeah. hear when they people sing Botset because obviously it's not it's like not a it's lyrical. Not, it's not a lyrical Mozartian kind of role. It's it's very difficult, and usually hear you don't hear people whose voices are that like luxuriously beautiful yeah. singer, a role like that so i'm interested to mm-hmm. hear it yeah. and, and also peter Matei is so physically i mean i'm sure he's an incredibly nice man but he's very tall and he's very physically imposing and vatsek is such a broken character i'm interested to see how that plays out so yeah. i think it'll be great and we say next season as it's the time that we are recording this when you're listening to this mm. it is current Voltsec. season yeah current met season mm-hmm. the current met season Voltsec.